Hello again and welcome everybody back to another edition of the Everything College Basketball Podcast, episode 99. I just need to take a pause on that because 99 episodes. We're on the drive. Next week will be the big, historic episode 100. But until then, I'm, of course, your host, Josh Burton. And joining me again today, my familiar, hopefully but familiar by now, teammate, Mr. Phil Dexter. Corey's not able to join us today. Uh, As you guys know, college baseball has started. His team got off to a red-hot start over the weekend. So he's a little tired. He will be back with us for episode 100 next week. But, Phil, it's just you and I today. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, just a duo today, but definitely uh, had another good week of college basketball. So always excited to uh, get after it. Brother, we went from the three-man weave to just playing NBA Jam style today. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, pick and roll, man. Pick and roll. Hey, we're stocked and alone in it. So... With that being said, with Stockton Malone, of course, we couldn't do this episode without our without the great help from our sponsor, our title sponsor, Manscaped. Guys, if you haven't got to Manscaped yet, it's 2022. What are you doing with yourselves? No one, whether you're with your partner is male, female, or whoever you're with, or even if you're a single man, protect those nuts. Go ahead and go to manscaped.com right now. Use the promo code ECB for a flat 20% off your entire purchase and free worldwide shipping. There's no reason in 2022 that you should not be using the highest quality products on the market to keep yourself clean downstairs. Tell them about it, Phil. Yeah, man. I mean, if you're not using it for you, like Josh said, at least use it for your partner. Your partner's going to appreciate this. Nobody, nobody wants to play with the boys after a long day when they're all sweaty. You know, get them, get them nice and taken care of. That ball deodorizer crop preserver uh yeah manscaped it's the way to go yeah make sure you're getting picking up if nothing else go pick up their new lawnmower 4.0 it is the best trimmer on the market and i say that from experience the lawnmower 4.0 the ergonomic uh, feel to it it's got the led light in case you need for whatever reason you're trying to shave in the dark i don't understand why and it is waterproof you can use it in the shower again take it from experience Guys, go protect yourselves in 2022. Go to manscaped.com. Keep them boys nice and fresh and clean and nice and trimmed down. Nobody wants a jungle down there. This isn't the 60s and 70s no more. Go to manscaped.com right now. Use promo code ECB for a flat 20% off of your entire purchase and free worldwide shipping, manscaped.com. Phil, we were talking about it off air before we hopped on here. Of course, um, again, I wish Corey could join us, but we fully understand his commitments. he did get a big – they opened the season up Friday night, did get a big uh, victory, one nine two in the opener. He said the bats were alive. They had a doubleheader yesterday, so I, I get it. But you and I today, man, we talked about just before we started recording, 99 episodes. I can – I know you've only been here for a handful now, but the fact that we're coming up on the big 100 episodes, I think that just screams legitimacy to me. Yeah, man. And I want to say a big congratulations to you. And uh, I know he's not here at the moment, but uh, Peyton as well, because like you said, I've only been a part of a handful of these and I already see the amount of work that goes into, you know, each and every episode. So putting together what this is the 99th now is uh, really impressive. So congratulations to you guys. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Uh, can't wait for the the big 100 next week. But let's focus on episode 99 because we got a big show today to talk about. We were scheduled to be joined by um, by our guest today, Michael Hunter from the ACC Basketball Report. Um, 
the rock and top 25. You can find him on Twitter, but things happen. Um, hopefully he can still join us later on. If not, we'll get him back on later on. I, I'm sure as our listeners remember start of the year, Michael joined us for the first time. Great episode. So hopefully if he can join us here later on, then we'll, we'll have him on. If not, we'll reschedule him for another time, but let's go right into the action. Um, normally I know we like to start with some news, but it was kind of quiet. Like we didn't have the Bruce Pearl talk anymore. We didn't have the, the Louisville stuff. I mean, Louisville's in the news for something else that we're going to get to, but as far as it was kind of light news week, wasn't it? Yeah. All the news this week was kind of like game related. You know, you had the story of coach K going to Chapel Hill for his final trip. So there was that kind of stuff, but you know, no soap opera type stuff. Yeah, nothing really. I I mean, I guess the only thing we could talk about, and I guess I do want to get your thoughts on this. Stony Brook next season, they've already decided to leave their conference. Um, I think they're part of the American East. Let me turn that off. I apologize about that. These stupid ads, man. Um, (laughs) You know, ESP needs to get that shit together. But um, Stony Brook, I think they're in the American East, if I remember right. I pulled up. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's correct. But they're leaving. So it says right here, American East banned Stony Brook from conference tournaments. Stony Brook's athletic teams will need to receive an at-large bid at the NCAA tournaments, which they're not going to. That's a one-bid league. But the American East announced Wednesday that the school is ineligible for a conference postseason tournament because it's leaving the it's leaving for the Colonial Athletic Association next year. I don't know, man. That to me. That is very, very petty of the American East. Like, come on now. I get that you're upset that they're leaving, but to completely kick them out. I mean, Stony Brook's not going to get an at-large bid. That, that, that's not a, a, a one of these mid to low majors that has a chance. The American East is a one-bid league. Vermont's probably going to get it. Stony Brook, they have no shot now. Like, that's to me, that's ridiculous. But I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, you know, it's a tough situation because I I sort of see where the America East is coming from because Stony Brook, if I'm not mistaken, announced this move during the season, which kind of, you know, puts the America East in a tough spot. But like I mean, we're we're penalizing the wrong people here. We're we're penalizing the kids and Stony Brook had some grad transfers and stuff like that. And they get you know, they're not having a great season, but you never know what can happen in a conference tournament. We've seen, you know, 10 and 15, 10 and 20 teams make the tournament before. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could have done it. And there just has to be a better solution than this. I've seen some people suggest maybe, you know, you say that they can still make the tournament, but all the revenue that they make from the tournament still has to go to the America East. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is, but it, it doesn't seem like this was the way to handle it. And it's ridiculous. Like, I get it. Like, Stony Brook should have gave them a heads up. They should have, you know, this should have been done prior. I get that. I get American East being upset, but man, you're, you're not, like you said, you're not harming the university. Like you think you are, you're harming the kids. I honestly, other than just playing for the love of basketball. Now Stony Brook has nothing to play for that. They have no, what are they playing for? They're just playing to get games in now for the seniors, the, the end on a high note, like you're, you're taking that opportunity away from it. And again, were they probably going to make the NCAA tournament? No. But like you said, how many years now, every year, there's at least one team that steals a bid that was not very good during the regular season. To me, that's extremely petty of the American East 
they're going to be out anyways in six months. They're not going to be in your conference no more. Why punish them now? I don't know. I don't like the move. I feel like they could dock them money or something, charge the university a couple hundred grand, but don't ban them from the tournament. You're taking everything away from them. If and I was a kid from Stony Brook, I mean, obviously, I guess I still play, but what's the point of playing if you don't have at least a sliver of hope of playing any postseason, especially NCAA? Well, and I mean, I'm, I might not play, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of these guys, they are at Stony Brook, so they may not have, you know, a huge pro career ahead of them. But, you know, you're out there risking injury. And like you said, or literally nothing. And again, we're, the kids had nothing to do with this decision being made. This is all stuff that's done with athletic departments and university presidents. And but none of those people are paying the price for the decision that they make. And it's yeah, it's bullshit. But it's just one of those things where, you know, what is the better solution? I don't know, but it, it's bullshit. It, it's the jilted lover syndrome. Um, American East got their feelings hurt because it happened during the middle of the season. And now they're going to get their revenge. But to me, it's a bad look. It, it really is a bad look. And, and I feel bad for the Stony Brook kids, um, the programs. And, and here's the, the hypocrisy that everybody talks about that the big topic conversation regarding like when kids would transfer and they had to sit out a year, but coaches were okay to leave and not have to sit out at any point. It's the same way with people in administration. If a school president or the AD or the the commissioner of the American East gets a better job right now, say the commissioner of the American East, and I don't know who it is, but let's say that they get an offer right now that they can go take over the the big east right like they're they're eligible like the big east wants them to come be their new commissioner and they have to leave right now or lose the opportunity what do you think the commissioner from the american east is going to do they're taking it man we all know that and would they have to face any penalty hell no they wouldn't so it's ridiculous i I, this whole banning i don't know there's reasons to ban teams and programs from tournaments but this is not one of them I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Complete bullshit. But I guess other than that, that was really the only piece of news. Um, we had a couple milestones hit. Congratulations to Coach Matt Painter. He got his 400th win over um, over the weekend at Purdue or in his coaching career. I actually thought, you know, he's been there a while. I thought he'd have more than 400 by now. But I guess there was a couple bad years at the start, and then obviously uh, Purdue staying on that topic was became the first team yesterday to eclipse a thousand or be to get to the thousand win threshold inside the big 10 first team in uh in the conference ever to do so so congratulations on those milestones yeah I'm I'm a little surprised at both of those milestones like you brought up I would have thought Painter had a, a few more wins than that by now but I mean this is no knock on Purdue but I don't think of them kind of as the, you know, the team of the big 10, but I guess they do have that consistency, you know, over the course of 40, 50 years. So I guess it does make sense. Yeah. It, they're a weird program, man. Um, because I think everybody looks at their lack of NCAA tournament success, no national championships, no final four since 1980, but they're always so damn consistent in the big 10. Like they're so they've got the most big 10 titles They've now got the most wins. I mean, they've had the most wins, but, you know, the first one to a thousand. It's just it's a weird dichotomy, man. You would think, especially in a in a big time conference like that, that at some point in the last 40 some years, that they had at least got a final four. 
Yeah. But like you said, that's kind of, you know, the reputation they've built at this point. And I guess maybe that's also why, excuse me, that I'm surprised is because you just, you know, you don't think of Purdue as one of those kind of blue blood programs because they haven't had that tournament success. Yeah, but congratulations. Big time milestones for not only Matt Painter, but the Purdue Boilermaker program. But let's go ahead and get into some of the action this past week. It was it was a very interesting week, some controversy during the games we're going to talk about. Refing continues to be awful across the board. We're going to get into all that. But let's go ahead and start with um, – I know it's easy to start with Duke Carolina. We'll get to that and the whole Coach K deal. Hey, by the way, did you know it's, it's Coach K's last time um, – coaching at the Dean Dome. I didn't know if you, that had been made clear to you yet or not. No, I did not hear that. That's uh, actually a shocking revelation to me. I know, man. If only we had heard it. <laughs> but <laughs> we'll get into that one. It ended up not being much of a game after all. But let's start with, I guess, probably the more heated part of the, of the week. Let's go, go to the Texas-Texas Tech game. It's Chris Beard's first time back at Texas Tech after leaving this last summer to take over at their rival Texas. He made the the jump from Tech where he built a nice program coming up Final Four a couple years ago, consistently at the top of the Big 12, to take over for Shaka Smart at Texas. Um, we all thought preseason that Texas, with the transfers he coming in had coming in, some of the guys he had coming back, Courtney Ramey and them, um, Texas would be loaded. But it turns out, coming into this game, Texas Tech, is better off without him right now. Mark Adams is right there in national coach of the year conversation. And what a game. That atmosphere was one of the best atmospheres all year this year. The tech students were riled up and fired and ready to go for the beard homecoming. I guess not homecoming, I guess return. I seen a sign where it said that he was, um, I forget the gist of the sign, but it's basically um, traitors. It had Benedict Arnold and Reiner that Chris Beard. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Texas Tech fans hold a little animosity, but at the end of the day, man, they uh, they showed out in this game, man. They got their revenge. Tech wins over Texas. Your thoughts about the whole beard, you know, not even a controversy, but him coming back. They had to have security around him at all times. The, the atmosphere, like your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, over the past few years, and I guess you can, you know, thank Chris Beard for a lot of this, Texas Tech has sort of built one of the, uh, or their fan base, excuse me, has built sort of a reputation as being one of the nastier in the country. And uh, so I think people were expecting it to maybe be a little nastier than it was. I mean, the environment was unbelievable. Fans were fired up and they booed him, but it didn't, you know, it didn't get too bad. And uh, I had said it before the game, I knew it wasn't going to happen, but I had sort of hoped the tech fans would just be, you know, a little grateful to Chris Beard because their, their program's at a level that it's never really been before. And they've, you know, they've had Bob Knight, they've had Tubby Smith and nobody's really been able to do there what Chris Beard did. So I think there is something to be said for that. Um, and I mean, he left for his alma mater, which I also do think plays into things, but it it's their rival. So I, I get it, but uh, they played well. I mean, Texas tech played their, their particular brand of basketball, you know, tough defense forced 14 turnovers. Texas wasn't really shooting the ball. Well, um, I think it was a super impressive win for Mark Adams. Oh man. They continue to do. I don't know. It's like every time you think that, that this tech team is eventually going to hit that, you know, hit that slump and come back to reality, I guess. Man, they're 17 and five now, six and three inside of a very tough Big 12 conference, and they dominated Texas in this game. 
They beat them 77-64. Kevin McCuller was MVP for the the Ken Palm MVP, should I say. 19 points in this game, six rebounds, uh, two blocks. Tech just muddies everything up. They defend at an elite level. They grind games out. Um, Terrence Shannon only played six minutes in this game. What a win. I mean, I'm, I don't know what else to say um, other than the fact that Texas, to me, has been one of the more disappointing teams this year with all that talent. We talked about it. Courtney Ramey coming back. You bring in transfers like Marcus Carr, Timmy Allen, Trey Mitchell, Christian Bishop. Um, Andrew Jones is back. Devin Askew is coming in. Dylan Dessou from Vanderbilt. That's a team that had Final Four potential written all over it, and they have just underperformed this year, which is so weird for a Chris Beard team to do. Yeah, I wish I could remember who said it, so I apologize that I'm not giving you the credit you deserve, but somebody made a good point a week or two ago that Chris Beard is coaching this Texas team like they're still full of two- and three-star guys. And, And I think that's a really good point. You know, when you have the level of recruit, athlete, and, you know, obviously a lot of the guys they have are transfers, but most of them are still pretty high level recruits or had had success around the country. Like that playing this slow style of basketball. And I, I'm not saying I, you know, have an issue with them playing tough defense, but like they should be getting out and, and running on teams. They should be scoring in transition and they don't do those things. I think I, I'd have to pull it up real quick, but their pace, their tempo is, yeah, they're 347th in the country in adjusted tempo right now. Yeah, and, and it showed. Yeah, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but it showed. Oh, only, only put up sixty-four points with that type of talent. They're not. Ex- I mean, they're they've got some good size, but not compared to other teams. You know, six nine's their biggest kid, Dylan Dessou and Trey Mitchell from the UMass transfers, six nine. So they got essentially a bunch of combo guard wing players. They should be getting up and running. They six of. 23 from the three-point line. I mean, that's enough to take. Obviously, you got to hit more. They're just another one of those handful of teams that struggle scoring the basketball. We talk about it. Tennessee, Memphis, Louisville, like all these teams that play pretty good defense but just cannot put the ball in the hoop. And I, I think you're onto something. The tempo being so low, man, you got to get up and try to force the action sometimes. Let the athletes go. Yeah, and that's something he's just going to have to adjust to because he didn't really have a ton of those guys at Texas Tech. You know, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. He had the Jarrett Culvers. Um, gosh, who was the kid they had the year before that? Um, Zaire Smith. Um, yep. So they've, they've had some really good top guys, but they haven't had, you know, five deep of that. And he's going to have to adjust his coaching a little bit to that, I think. I completely agree. Um Completely. It would be maybe it's not a great comparison, but it'd be like a coach in college football that runs strictly the I formation or like a a triple option. Right. Like say like um, a coach at, I don't know, Air Force has a couple really good years and then goes and tries to implement the same thing. He gets a job at, you know, Florida. Right. And tries to run the same thing. It's not going to work. You have to adjust because now you've got playmakers. Most teams run like the triple option and stuff because they don't have those type of, you know, the the athletes. It's the same thing here. Beard, you you can keep your defensive identity. Look at like, I mean, not to be the homerish, but look at teams like Kentucky and Duke, Gonzaga. You know, and Purdue's not the greatest defensive team this year, but examples, 
they play a fun style of offensive basketball and keep their defensive identity for the most part. Nobody says you have to give up your defensive minded stuff, but offensively, you've got to put the ball in the bucket, which I think is a great segue. If you haven't checked out my article yet, I wrote this past week, go give it a look. I think it's pretty good. It's gotten some good reviews where I dug deep into the last 10 national champions in college basketball and even included the 2020 COVID season where the favorite would have been Kansas. And there's a particular thread that all these champions have. Um, Phil, I'll let you go ahead and fill everybody in what that is. Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of people tend to talk about defense winning championships. I think that that's the old saying. But uh, what you found out is that maybe having a top five, top ten offense is more important. I think every team on that list had a top five offense and a top 20 defense, if I'm not mistaken. Top 10 offense. Most of them had top five, but at least all of them were top 10 and adjusted offense and a top 20 defense. Yeah, and, I mean, I think that sort of speaks to – the change in basketball a little bit. I know it hasn't filtered as much to college as we see in the pro game, but the game is just more offensively oriented now. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that it's fun to watch and, you know, it is what it is, but it, it definitely is more offensive oriented. And, and you look at Texas and this is like on par with that. They're ninth in adjusted defense. They have a very good defense, but they're 41st in offense. You talk about their tempo being towards the very bottom in division one as far as playing a slower tight tempo game they're shooting 33 percent from the three-point line um yeah i think beard's gotta adjust and i'm not saying you have to press i know pressing's not always the answer but i think it helps because at least maybe speed teams up the bad teams are going to turn over which should lead to easy layups dunks and transition threes i think you have to find ways to manufacture points they're high total this year they scored 90, I'm sorry, they scored, yeah, 92 points. But the first game of the year where they beat Houston Baptist, they've scored 99, or sorry, 92 points is the highest they've scored this year. And you look at their last, God, handful of games. Um, well, since Utah, or sorry, not since UT Rio Grande Valley back in December 3rd, where they scored 88 points. Since then, they've scored 60, 63, 60. 68, 78, 74, 70, 51, 66, 70, 65, 56, 73, 52, 64, and 63. That's not going to take you far in March. No, and I'm looking at some of the other teams just, you know, in the top 25 or so. And if you look at the other teams that are even close to Texas in tempo, it's like it's St. Mary's, it's Houston and at Loyola Chicago like it's not teams that you would really compare the kind of rosters they have no it I don't know man beard I mean are they bad no Texas is 17 and 6 now they did bounce back yesterday they beat Iowa State who's slumping they beat them they actually beat their brains in 63 41 they held Iowa State to 41 points that's great but still only scored 63. I mean, so it's not like we're saying Texas is bad, but man, with that type of talent, they should be a lot better. Like I said, preseason, a lot of us had them final four conversation. Um, Talent-wise, they still could be, but playing-wise and style-wise, it's not going to cut it. This is a team that easily could make the Sweet 16. They could be out in the first round, um, and I think it's all due, like you said, to the tempo and style of offense that's got to make a change because that schedule coming up, for Texas, 
Kansas tomorrow on Monday, Baylor on Saturday, Oklahoma, Texas Tech, that's their next four. Like, that's going to be brutal to try to get a win in any of those four. Well, and that's the kind of tough position they put themselves in, you know, because they didn't play super well in non-conference despite having the 342nd ranked non-conference strength of schedule. Like, their non-conference was supposed to build them up with some wins that they could, you know, afford maybe a couple losses late in the season. And they're not on the bubble by any means. But if if Texas goes one and three, oh and four in that stretch of games, you know, they're all of a sudden looking at maybe being a six or a seven seed. Um, maybe worse than that, because I'm glad you said that because they're 17 and six right now. Say they just for let's say over the next four, they lose all four. Kansas, Baylor, Oklahoma, and Texas Tech right, with two of them on the road being Baylor and Oklahoma. That puts them at 17 and 10. Um, that's firmly on the bubble to me. I know what the Big 12 is helping them out with being so damn tough this year. But you also got to think after that, their final four after that, TCU's a tournament team. West Virginia's been, you know, they've been so-so, but that's on the road. And then you got to play Baylor, Kansas again. They could legit end the season with 12 losses at this point. Um, and then if they were to have a bad showing the Big 12, this, this honestly could be a team that could miss the tournament with 12 or 13 losses. So something's got to be changed in Texas. Um, you talk about their non-conference. They got blown out by Gonzaga. I know the score ended up being 86-74, but anybody watched that game, Gonzaga whooped them. I mean, just whooped them. They got beat by Seton Hall, their best non-conference win, um, Stanford. And Stanford's not a tournament team. Well, and that's what I was going to say is if Texas does end up on the bubble, who have they beaten? They, they haven't beaten anybody. <laughs> like their, their resume is lacking a big, everybody talks about the Owen seven that UNC is against or uh, in quad one games. And I don't have Texas's number in front of me, but it can't be a whole lot better. I mean, Tennessee is the only team that they've beaten. Yeah. I mean, as far as tournament teams go, TCU's on the tournament right now, Tennessee and Iowa state, but Iowa State slumping. We talked about it off air. Iowa State kind of overachieved in November, December, and they came back to earth in conference play. Tennessee's a good win. The Vols are playing a lot better. TCU, Jamie Dixon, tremendous. What I've never in a million years thought TCU could remotely be as good as they've been under him, and they're a tournament team. So really, that's it, right? TCU and Tennessee. I mean, like I said, I'm not even counting Iowa State. TCU and Tennessee is your best wins on the year. Yeah, that's not a that's not a tournament resume uh, outside the being 17 and six right now. Again, you know, we talked about this before the show off air, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to penalize the team who is beating the teams they're supposed to for the most part. But and this is something that's come up with Texas again. At some point, you have to win a big game. And the Iowa State game was a step forward, but they're fading. You mentioned that they they played over their head in non-conference, I think, and we're starting to see them come back down to earth a little bit. Um, Texas really, I think, needs one of the Baylor or Kansas wins down the stretch here, and probably two of them. They've got – and you're looking at Ken Palm right now, has got them projected going 21 and 10. They've got them beating Kansas on Monday. I know it's at home. I don't see it. Um, we'll get into it. They've got on beating Baylor at home at the end of the year. Again, don't see it right now. Um, there's we, there's a legit chance, man. You look at that remaining schedule we talked about, their final eight regular season games. Kansas-Baylor twice, um, TCU-Oklahoma-Texas Tech, and West Virginia. Dude, 
I don't know. I mean, they're better than Oklahoma, but it's on the road. Can they get the win? I don't probably, but it's going to be tough. TCU, um, West Virginia on the road is not an easy place to play. There is a le- I'm not saying they're going to because I do think they're going to win some of these, but there's a legit chance they could, you know, one and seven in the stretch in the year, maybe even zero oh and eight. I'm not that high. I just I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I I'm surprised Ken Palm has them winning on Monday and uh, against Baylor because I just don't I wouldn't have them in either of those games. And, and then the easier quote games that they have, like you said, are at West Virginia, um, at Oklahoma. So I, th- I think they probably go two and six in that stretch. They figure out a way to get two of those wins, but even that puts them in a position where they're, yeah. And yeah, that, I, that would probably put them firmly on the bubble. I mean, they really need to go four and four here probably to be comfortable. Yeah, I would say so. Um, if you go two and six down the stretch, I mean, we we see teams all the time every year, especially, you know, from the power conferences, you know, 12, even 13 losses will sneak in the tournament and be one of those, uh, the not first round buys, what are they called? The uh, play-in games, you know, as an 11 seed or 12 seed. But man, they've not put themselves in any favors right now. 17 to six is fine, but you look at that upcoming schedule and it's brutal down the stretch. One of the toughest ones got to be in America, probably top 10 strength of schedule remaining. That would put them in a spot. If they did go like two and six, the, the remaining eight, they have to, I think, at least get to the semifinals or, you know, draw a Kansas or Baylor and knock them out in the, in the quarterfinals of the Big 12 tournament. It, without that, I don't know, man. There's a legit chance Texas might not be in the tournament this year. Yeah, I would say it probably does depend on, you know, if they went two and six, which two games they got. You know, if they were to get a game against Kansas and Baylor, that would probably build up the resume a little bit and look a little bit stronger than maybe some of the teams they're up against on the bubble. But like you said, if they go two and six and and lose to, um, you know, Oklahoma, lose to TCU, then they're going to need a little bit of a run in the in the Big 12 tournament. And the, it just speaks to how good the Big 12 is. There's there's not really an easy win to get there. So, yeah, no. we'll, we'll see. Yeah, um, I guess the last thing on Texas real quick, um, speaking on that. Now, if, if they go out and beat just one of the Kansas or Baylor, if they can in these next two somewhere or at the end of the year, if they can beat one of those, especially if they beat two, they're solidly in the tournament. But if they can just knock off one, if they can get Kansas tomorrow or Baylor on Saturday next week, then I think regardless of what happens, that'll be just enough to squeak them by through the tournament. But, man, Texas is not doing themselves any favor right now. But great win for Texas Tech. I think we should spend a little bit more time on them. Uh, Mark Adams, though, he's got to be right there for National Coach of the Year contention. They're 18 and five now. They are seven and three in the conference towards the top of the conference right there with Kansas and Baylor. Uh, Winners of five of their last six. The only loss being a double overtime game at Fog Allen, where they honestly had a chance to steal that one. This is a Texas Tech team, man, that is probably going to get it unless they completely falter down the stretch. Um, this is a team that's probably going to be right around under that four, five, six range and going to be very dangerous, the style of play, the number two defense in America right now. Yeah, we didn't talk about him as far as uh, this game, but I love Kevin O'Banner. 
you know, he's got the tournament experience from being with Oral Roberts last year. His production's a little bit down um, from where it was at Oral Roberts, but I think that's to be expected, obviously, transferring up a level. But he went five for seven from three, was huge for them, and just gives them a lot of energy. You know, he's just – he's a winning player. And it seems like the the kids like playing for Mark Adams. I know their familiarity there because he was there for all them years with Beard as his top assistant – but it seems like if you listen to them in post game and on Twitter and you watch their style of play, it seems they really have bought in playing for him and the style in which they play. They just they will beat you up. They will beat you up. And if you're not strong enough to handle it, they'll run you over. Um, very good Texas Tech team. And you talk about schedule. They have a more favorable schedule down the stretch than Texas does. Oklahoma, TCU, they do have the Baylor game. Texas, of course, we talked talked about that the return leg but then Oklahoma again TCU Kansas State Oklahoma State that's that's a very manageable schedule to end the year for Texas Tech to increase their seed line yeah absolutely I mean we we talked about it a little bit that there's not really an an easy win in the Big 12 but it's you know I I'm sure they wouldn't trade their schedule down the stretch with Texas oh absolutely not what a great win, though. Great atmosphere. One of the top atmospheres in college basketball this year. Those fans were looking for blood, and they got it. Their Red Raiders dominated Texas and uh, puts themselves in a great spot seed-wise for the tournament in the Big 12 and puts the hurts on Texas. Interesting stuff. Let's go to the the rivalry game. I know there's some debate. We had some fun on the Facebook group. Um, me and Peyton talked about it a lot, but let's go into, again, hey, by the way, did you know this was Coach K's last time in the Dean Dome? <laughs> no, I didn't hear anything about it until you mentioned it to start the show. Like, I, I watched the game last night, and I swear they did not mention it a single time. I know. It's so... It's so unprofessional them not to let everybody know that Coach K will be the last time in the Dean Dome. I mean, if only they would have said it every 30 seconds. Maybe everybody would have understood. All kidding aside, all kidding aside, um, big-time rivalry game, and Duke came out and just throttled Carolina from the start. I mean, it, Carolina never led in the game. They never once had a lead, not even for one second. Duke came out and throttled on Paolo Bancaro early on, picks up two fouls against um, against Armando Baycott. I get it from a coach's standpoint in a way of what um, Hubert Davis was trying to do. I think he thought putting size, Baycott's pretty athletic for being 6'9", 6'10". Um, I guess he thought size would match up because I'm sure he probably seen what Jacob Toppin was able to do with Paolo Bancaro at the start of the year. Probably thought something similar. But at the same time, you had one advantage in this game, and that would have been Baycott down low, or at least everybody thought. They thought if Baycott, if there was one advantage Carolina has, it's Armando Baycott down low going to work against Mark Williams and using his, uh, his skill and footwork down low to pick up some points and rebounds, and you got him two fouls in the first couple minutes. Hindsight, bad, bad decision. Um, you needed him out there, and Duke just throttled Carolina. Beat them 87-67. A.J. Griffin was tremendous. He's been so good in the last four weeks. Well, and not to mention that Armando Baycott just wasn't doing a great job of guarding Paulo Bancaro. I mean, and Leaky Black did a great job when he was switched to him. So, I mean, you just sort of seen as soon as they made that switch because Baycott had to go to the bench and – uh, I mean, he didn't shut him down by any means, but Leaky Black was giving him trouble all night, got a couple steals off of him. 
like you said, though, AJ Griffin, man, he, I, I mentioned it to you guys, I think off air last week, but I think he's, he's not a, a better player than Von Caro, but he might be more important to what Duke does, given them that shooting the defense. Um, and, and he's an NBA ready player, I think. Yeah, he's definitely looking like it now. I mean, he's a six six guard. Um, he's got that prototypical um, two-man spot looking for the NBA, and he's a specialist now, his three-point shooting. He's up to, what, like 53% on the year? Yeah, I don't uh, know if you heard uh, Jay Billis mention it at all last night. He only said it probably 15 times, that he's the only player from a power conference that's shooting over 50% from three yeah, he's with so- a minimum of like 50 attempts or something. Yeah, he's now 36 of 72. He's shooting exactly 50% from three. For people who don't understand, to me, 35% is about average. That's kind of the mark you want to be at. Um, he's shooting 50% from three. Absolutely torching the nets. And it looks like we have now been joined by our other co-host, Corey Gardner. Um, Corey, you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, what's up, man? Um, we, we let everybody know that the, the baseball guy kind of kicked your ass a little bit this weekend, but good to finally have you in. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, uh, three games, high, high stress, uh, a lot of close games and stuff like that. Definitely uh, definitely is a lot more wearing as a coach uh, emotionally and just mentally draining than the physical attribute. But on top of that, long days dealing with the weather and all that, trying to get the field playable after a lot of rain and stuff. So I, uh, I definitely got my – yeah, fair share of work in this weekend. So, like I said, appreciate you guys uh, getting rolling. Glad to be yeah, in. Yeah, no problem, man. That's what teammates do. Uh, we, Like I said, we covered for it. We did let everybody know, though, real quick, before we get back to Duke Carolina, that you guys tucked the, the opening game. Did you guys end up winning? A two out of three. Uh, one Friday, uh, nine to two. One uh, six to three. And then, uh, unfortunately, dropped the last game, seven to six. So, we battled back and, uh, unfortunately, dropped the last one by a run. So, uh, but, hey. Feels good to be back on the field. Good start, though. Hey, before um, before kind of, I want to talk about Trevor Keels and his reemergence. Um, Duke Carolina, Duke batters North Carolina. Your kind of thoughts on that? Uh, Duke definitely came out, showed uh, showed their dominance, showed that you know they are a top tier contender. Uh, Coach K went in and got a dominant win uh, to leave uh, you know Chapel Hill the last time. And, uh, you know, kind of left a a sour taste in the UNC fans' mouth for a long time to come. So uh, I think uh, think they dominated every part of the game. UNC kind of just didn't have an an answer to match anything. They just definitely ran away with it. So Duke definitely showed that they're the top-tier team in that, you know, entire rivalry right there this year. By the way, Corey, I know you probably just missed it uh, since you just hopped in, but I just wanted to let you know, um, in case you hadn't already heard that that was Coach K's last time in the Dean Dome. I didn't know if you knew that or not. You know, the craziest thing was, I think my watch went off about 718 times telling me that. Um, I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. You know, I felt like there was a lot of conversation coming up that people were, you know, just wanting to make sure that that was well known. I don't know if it was actually said during the game, but I mean, it was just weird that I got that many notifications. So <laughs> yeah, it's almost like ESPN was paid for how many times they could say it and fit it in. And I think they eclipsed the total that they needed to get. So I hope somebody got rich off that, but um, Trevor Keels though, fellas, you know, he red hot at the start of the year. He had that tremendous first game against Kentucky where he we went for 25. I think it was 
Then I know he battled some injuries. He started coming off the bench. Um, that's when the emergence of A.J. Griffin came in. But Trevor Keels last night, 20 minutes, 11 points, three or four from the three-point line. I, the numbers itself won't blow you away, but for the first time in a while, it looks like we're finally starting to get the glimpses of the Trevor Keels we've seen at the beginning of the year. Yeah, and I definitely think uh, you know his presence had something to do with uh, how bad the Carolina guard play was because he's just a really good on-ball defender, um, and that's something that they they've been missing without him. Um, but Jeremy Roach was who was I was super impressed with. I thought he was the best guard on the floor last night. I tell you who I was really impressed with, um, and he's been tremendous this year. Is Mark Williams nine points, um, six rebounds, two assists, two blocks. But it's more than what he does on the stat sheet. It's just he defends the rim and makes life so hard for opposing the opposing team, not just bigs, but guards coming down the lane. He's to me, he is that X factor for Duke because it's only him and Theo John really as the big men down low. But him emerging this season as that type of rim protector leader can throw it down on the block and he'll go get you a bucket and get you some offensive rebounds off of it. I think he's the X factor for Duke. I agree. Uh, I don't want to compare them because they're not really the same kind of player, but I just don't think Duke has really had that kind of center presence really since like Brian Zubak maybe. Um, and like you said, he's just, he's so athletic that on defense, he completely makes you change how you play because you can't really attack the rim as much. And then, you know, he had that great, uh, alley-oop off the inbounds I think it was at the beginning of the second half maybe late in the first half but uh it's plays like that you know he doesn't need to get the ball in the post you can just get him little plays like that and he'll get his eight ten points and uh yeah he's a beast on the Carolina side um obviously demoralizing um you, you knew Duke was going to be good coming in but you thought with the rivalry and everything Carolina had been playing well um you kind of thought that you could keep it close um even if you lost you'd keep it close but they got just throttled from the word go that one of the bright spots probably the biggest bright spot for them was Brady Man at 21 points but he didn't come out until he played that whole game essentially until I don't know about the six minute mark when the game was really out of hand he finally got his first sub you could tell he was tired I know Billis was alluding to it said how tired he was going against the Duke Bigs and having to guard guys like Bancaro and um, switch out sometimes on AJ Griffin and Wendell Moore and Mark Williams but I thought he was their their big bright spot. You know, he hit six threes, six attempts from three. This is what we all expected for him coming over from Oklahoma as a pick and pop stretch big guy. And if it's almost weird, only if somebody um, from the uh, a certain podcast would have mentioned it, previewing it last week that Brady Manick could have had a good game. You know, picking and popping, but only if that existed. Yeah, if if there was that guy, he would be really really smart i'll have to say but uh but manic was the only reason they were in the game you know on top of what he brought offensively just he he was the only player it seemed like for carolina that was playing with any kind of energy especially after the start that carolina got off to i mean that the start took the crowd out of the game kind of took their team out of the game and uh yeah he was the only one that was playing with any energy he had a couple plays where he made these really great fake passes on the perimeter that got him open threes um defensively he struggled a little bit but I think that was partially again because Baycott was in foul trouble and he was having to play a little bit more of that rim defender role and that's not really you know not really what he is 
But uh, if, if they just had a little bit more around him, you know, Carolina would be a great team, but they're just not getting much out of their guards right now, especially uh, KJ or <clears throat> excuse me, Caleb Love. I was going to mention Caleb Love. He it said he only had four turnovers, but it felt like he had four in the first three minutes. He was so out of control. Like, I get it. Carolina w- wants to push the ball, and we talked about it last week. I thought if they had any chance, not only with Manic picking and popping, but they had to catch Duke on their heels, no pun intended, and um, get some easy layups and threes and transition. He was just going hyperspeed, but had no clue what he was doing with the ball. And that, that really played a, a factor in, you know, Duke had a bunch of – I think they scored every time essentially off of his turnovers. He was out of control. I think Carolina is missing a true steady point guard. Like they're missing like a Joel Berry, Marcus Page type right now for this team. Yeah, no, that's definitely the sentiment among the fan base. I I seen somebody on Twitter last night post, you know, we just need a Carolina point guard because, you know, they're accustomed to a certain level from Ed Coda, Raymond Felton. I mean, shit, that's just recently, but we can go all the way back to Phil Ford. Um, Carolina has just always had those dudes. And they're a little spoiled in that way. But, I mean, when you come to Carolina as a point guard, you know there's going to be that expectation, those shoes you have to fill. And they just – they don't have that guy right now. Yeah. Um, bad look for Carolina last night. Caleb Love was not great. Good on Brady Manick. Uh, Leaky Black, you mentioned, only four points. But he he did a good enough job on Bandcara as you could probably play. They're missing some pieces. 16-7 and seven right now. We talked a lot about Texas. Um you know, their, their string of schedule and bubble and everything. Carolina's 45th in Ken Palm. They've got a good enough offense. They're top 25. They're 25th. Defense is really bad right now, 96 defense. Um, you know, you talk about quality wins for Carolina. Uh, the Michigan win's not, not as good now. I guess their biggest win would be Virginia right now. They've lost space anything else they've played as far as big games go. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have their schedule right in front of me. I'm pulling it up. Did they beat Notre Dame? Um, they did not. Notre Dame beat them 78-73. Okay. Yeah. Um, like you said, it's it's like we talked about with Texas. There's there's the record. You look at Carolina's schedule though. So they are 16 and 7 on the year. I mean, seven losses with what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine games left, man. There's a handful of losses still to be had. Talk about Texas, man. Um, Carolina's not safe in the tournament right now. Right now, I think they're a tournament team, but then again, I don't know. Um, no big wins we just talked about outside of Virginia, essentially. Their upcoming schedule does help them some. Their next four is Clemson on the road, Florida State at home, Pittsburgh at home, Virginia Tech on the road. Then they're back against Louisville at North Carolina State, home against Syracuse, and then at the end of the year, of course, at Cameron. Um, schedule does help because ACC is not good this year, but Carolina is not consistent. If they're consistent, they can win that game against Clemson. They can beat Florida State. They can beat Pittsburgh. They can beat Virginia Tech. Those next four, if they go 4-0 on that, then they're now at 20-7. and That pretty much, I think, solidifies their tournament, but they're not consistent enough. So what are we looking like Carolina moving forward for their potential tournament seed, looking at the remaining schedule, and what do they need to do to make sure they're in the NCAA tournament come Selection Sunday? I mean, looking at their remaining schedule, I think the only game they have against the for-sure tournament team is the rematch with Duke um, at Cameron. 
Now, it would be a very Carolina thing to do to get blown out at home and then show up at Cameron and ruin Coach K's final game at Cameron Indoor. So that wouldn't shock me. But as far as seeding goes, I mean, they should go, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They should go seven and one down the stretch here. They, they would probably be the favorite in every game, but I'm not sure how much any of those wins actually do for their tournament seeding. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Corey, I know you were busy with uh, baseball duties this past weekend, but looking ahead to Carolina, man, 16 and seven, we talked about the schedule. Of those remaining nine, what's the target you think they got to solidify a tournament bid where they don't have to go on a crazy ACC tournament run? I think they have to win at least six. Uh, You know, I'm kind of looking at it. They come to Clemson this week. Uh, I get to go to Clemson game uh, a couple weeks ago thanks to the baseball staff over there. Clemson's tough at home. I mean, they can they can shoot the three ball well. They sit there and are hustling all over, uh, kind of lock up on the defensive end. I think that'll be a little bit of a tough game, but I think they got to at least win six of these next nine games. Um, you know, maybe dropping, you know, I think they'll definitely drop the game, you know, at Duke. Um, you know, they got quite a few home games right there against Florida State. Pittsburgh just got awful. Um, Louisville comes to them, and I think they definitely have to win that in-state rivalry against NC State at NC State. And so I think they have to take at least six of these games just to kind of solidify anything uh, to avoid missing out. I think it's right. Um, I think six is probably the the mark, um, unless you could get away with five, which would give you 22 wins, um, and beat Duke would solidify it. But, man – if they don't if they do anything worse than that if they only win five i'm sorry if they only win say they go four and five down the stretch man it's another one i think they're going to win a couple games in acc tournament like the resume is just not there for carolina this year no they have zero top you know or tier one wins i'm pretty sure this year they just really you know just don't have anything that you know really solidifies i mean michigan kind of having, you know, falling down the stretch and sitting there kind of missing out. Uh, they lost, you know, to Notre Dame, who was sat there and kind of raised their stock a few other games. And it's like they just really don't have that big win that just kind of solidifies their uh, their stock of being a true tournament team. Now, does the, you know, committee sit there and kind of stand for them because they're a, you know, a, you know, blue blood and stuff like that? You know, that may help out a little bit, but at the same time, they just really don't have the, you know, the statement wins this year to really, you know, put themselves, you know, well-deserving right now. Yeah, so rough times for Caroline. If you hear anything in the background, um, babysitting a one-year-old, so he just woke up from a long nap. So I will try to – I think you hear him right now. He wants to make his podcast debut. So <laughs> apologize to the listeners about that, but, you know, life happens. Um, but, yeah, Carolina has put themselves in a rough spot. Ending this real quick on Duke, I seen a tweet, and I think it was from John Rothstein – he said um, Duke at its apex is higher, has a higher ceiling essentially at their apex than any other team in college basketball. We talked about it last week, Kentucky. I wonder your guys' thoughts on that. Is he correct? Or is there somebody else you think at their very best is better than that? I personally uh, would agree with him. Um, I, I just think that Duke has every single piece that you could want when they're hitting on all cylinders between, you know, Keels as a good defender, outside shooter, Roach can facilitate the offense. AJ Griffin can score in a few different ways, but is a particularly knockdown shooter. Um, Boncaro is obviously maybe the best player in the country. 
Um, and then I think Mark Williams can match up with just about anybody in the country and gives them that post presence. So I really do think that at their best, Duke is the best team in the country. Yeah, I agree. I think they have every attribute that you need. They have, you know, the bigs that can sit there and lock up and protect the paint. They have the guard play that can sit there, and, you know, run the offense, but also sit there and lock up and defend the three ball and sit there and can handle the uh, dribble drive, everything. And they also have a strong enough bench that can sit here and come in and eat up minutes uh, just in case, you know, somebody goes down with, you know, foul trouble or whatever can, you know, kind of occur. I think they sit there and, you know, are well-rounded and are probably one of the most dangerous teams, if not the most dangerous. So the way I'll say it is this might sound contradictory and I'm not trying to be. Um, I think there is something to that. I think Duke – are the is there – Apex better than everybody else's? Maybe. Probably, I guess. But I don't know. You, you'd have to compare it. Gonzaga's Apex is really good. Auburn's is really good. Purdue, um, Kentucky. There's a handful of teams that at their A-plus game, we've seen, that, you know, they can put some whoopings on some teams. Um, I will say I think Duke, though, is the scariest team because they have pros – they have not only just Bancaro, but Wendell Moore is eventually a pro. Um, A.J. Griffin, we talked about Trevor Keels, Mark Williams, the, the defender, Theo John. So I think Duke's the most scariest team left – or, you know, not left, but when they're playing after their A-plus game, if that makes any sense. Are they the best? I don't know. I don't know. I, like I said, I think there's a handful of teams that it would be really interesting. Duke hasn't really done the A-plus game against somebody of worth, though. No offense to North Carolina, but, you know, Duke hasn't done that A-plus game in a while to somebody. So it's interesting, right? Yeah, I do think part of that is that, you know, they've kind of dealt with some injuries. We touched on it with Keels. And before, when Keels was playing well, A.J. Griffin was just working himself back from some injuries. Um and one thing I forgot to touch on that I you sort of did is uh, the glue guys they have too. It's not just the star players, you know, it's the Theo Johns, the Joey Bakers. They have the kind of glue guys that make a championship team as well. Um, I don't know if I would say they're the best team just because I do think they show their lack of experience in the backcourt sometimes. Uh, I don't think Wendell Moore Jr. is always the best guy for them to be running the offense through and they do run it through him quite a bit. Um, and I would still be skeptical of that thinking that they need to get Boncaro the ball a little bit more, but I think their a plus game is at least there with anybody else's. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Let's go on to a topic. I know that generated a lot of conversation amongst a lot of us on the college basketball world Stay on Carolina. Let's go back a couple nights to the Carolina-Louisville um, game where North Carolina wins on the road at the Yum Center. Mike Pegues, um, this is the second full game in charge, not with the interim tag anymore, but being the actual head coach, goes in the overtime, and some of the calls down the stretch – were as bad as I've seen all year. Like, officiating college basketball this year has been atrocious. Your guys' thoughts on that real quick before I give mine. Well, I, I did think that the officiating was kind of poor all night in that game, but at least it was even. They were, they were letting them play very physically for the majority of the night, but 
yeah, it, it pretty much devolved in that last minute. Um, I know a lot of people were more upset about this second foul with Baycott going across the neck of, uh, I don't remember who it was on Louisville. I'm sorry, but uh, the Curry. one that was on, on Curry, the one that was more atrocious to me was the first call where uh, there was, you know, the little, I don't even want to call it a skirmish because it, it wasn't really. And they didn't call a foul on the play. And then they go and review it and they call a technical on the guy who was just breaking the play up essentially, but they review it for five minutes. Like how do you review a play for that long, then get it wrong on a play that you didn't even call a foul to begin with? I, we've seen some bad officiating. I want to, we'll stay on this game real quick. And then I want to talk about the larger scope of officiating, but those calls down the street, Louisville, in my opinion, deserved to win this game. They hit 15 threes. We've talked all year about Louisville could not hit water in a boat this year. 15 threes in this game. L. Ellis was tremendous. 25 points, 5 of 11. They deserved to win this game. I mean, you could say you have the free throw or what whatever down the stretch. Obviously there's always other plays. Armando Baycott was tremendous. 26, or, uh, sorry, 19 points. What? 22 rebounds. Tremendous in this game. However, however, these calls down the stretch changed the course of the game at the end. And there's no excuse. Like Baycott flopped. I'm sorry. Uh, Peyton even said that um, somebody on the Twitter, uh, Baycott had told, I think it was, um, God, who'd he flop on? I cannot think of the kid's name now. Whoever it was that – man, I cannot think right now. But whoever it was that he What's got that? the flop. He, he Jalen Withers. Withers, thank you. He flopped. He said he flopped. If you look, look at it, like Withers was just trying to back him up off those skirmish, and all of a sudden Baycott goes down like he got shot. That, that was ridiculous. Before that, Baycott had tripped. I think it was Withers. And then, of course, the play at the end where I've never seen a call that bad in my life where the guy getting hit across the face, a full arm extension, elbow in the jaw, pushing his head back, got called for the foul. They even, like, how, how can you justify that? How, I, I don't understand how you can justify that. He got arm barred across the face. Any, and I was telling Peyton, any other time in the course of the game, a dude barely hits somebody with an elbow on an accidental box out. They get called for an intentional or flagrant foul. But in this situation, there's nothing called and you call a foul against Sidney Curry. I mean, that is the worst officiating job I've seen in a long time. And we've seen some bad ones. No, the same thing that I always say is, you know, officiates or officials are there to, you know, ref the game or there to, you know, kind of facilitate everything but they're not there to make the game about them, or they're not there to be seen. The fact that there's a five-minute review and they still get it wrong, the fact that there's constant bad calls and the things in that nature are just absolutely ridiculous. And all it is, it's 100% being seen, and it's just turning basketball even worse. And it's like, you know, we just – the fact that we have that going on is just, you know, almost embarrassing by the NCAA. I mean, referees are there to sit there and facilitate and not be seen. They're, you know, the fans aren't there for them to make a show of themselves. And that's exactly what that game turned into. It was an absolute embarrassment. Yeah, it was bad. Um, 
And like I said, Carolina did some good stuff. Um, it's not fair to say that the officiating, you know, tucked that out because Carolina, obviously, Baycott had 22 rebounds and Carolina couldn't hold him. I'm sorry, Louisville couldn't hold him. But those calls definitely changed the course of the game at the end. Carolina could have easily still won that game. But the the technical – and I don't blame Mike Piggies. At that point, being a coach myself, I would have got the technical too. It, it was ridiculous. They gave it to him because they just called that uh, BS foul against Sidney Curry. He's upset. The officials had to know they made a terrible call. And he hit the de- – he hit the, um, the scores table, and they teed him up for that. So, like, it was ridiculous. And later that same night, too, in the Auburn-Alabama game, Bruce Pearl went nuts slamming on the scores table and didn't get anything. So, officiating has been so bad this year. Like, I can't even – Kentucky-LSU, awful. This Louisville-North Carolina game, you were talking about it when you were covering the NC State women's game, Phil, earlier in the week for us at ECB. Um, Officiating across the board this year has just been F-minus bad. Yeah, I mean, you brought up the women's game that I covered earlier this week. God, if you guys think men's basketball is bad, the you know the women's basketball officials are the ones that you know can't even make it that high to to officiating men's games, and it was awful. Both coaches, Westmore and uh, the Florida State coach, were irate all night. And in this case, it wasn't you know uh, crazy calls trying to get attention. It just they weren't calling anything. And I guess at least at a certain point they're consistent. Um, and I've, I've talked to you about it. That's sort of my most important thing is at least if they call the game consistently, you can you know, adjust to it throughout the game. And that was probably, you know, the biggest thing about that North Carolina Louisville game is they had consistently let the game be physical all game. They set a physical tone through the way they officiated the game. And then they decided with a minute to go that they were going to officiate it differently. And, and then just, make crazy calls like Corey said and and get the attention on them. It was just, it was a really weird turn of events in that particular game, but yeah, something needs to be done with officiating in general in the NCAA, because we've talked about it almost every week this, you know, since I've been on the pod, at least in one instance or another, where there's calls that are changing games. I told you before the pod, you know, Seton Hall had their season changed by a bad call at the end of the game. And that type of shit should not be happening. Especially, they love going to the monitor for reviews. There should be – we don't want more stoppages in the college basketball. It's not that because the reviews take long enough. But if you're going to have one, make sure you're getting the damn game right. Um, there should have to – like, I don't know. I don't want to say like a challenge or anything like football, but there's got to be something to hold these officials accountable. You know my feelings. I've said it many a times before over the years. Officials should have to do some kind of post-game press conference and be reviewed themselves and grilled. And that stuff will change. As soon as they start having to talk to the media and explain themselves, that stuff will change. Because once you start getting bad calls like this and you constantly have to get railed and explain yourself and not just get a hide behind it, that I guarantee you the the way officiating is being right now will change to a whole nother level because it it's got to it can't be this bad. Like you're talking about the inconsistencies, you'll, you'll start letting them play and then you'll want to blow every whistle or you'll go 38 minutes of calling everything. And then the final two minutes, when it really matters, you'll let somebody just get haymakered in the face, just be consistent and be okay saying like, Oh yeah. Hey, I screwed that one up. I apologize. Cause 
at least we understand because we're humans. Like everybody makes mistakes, but man, that especially of all them calls, the hey, like the arm bar across the face to Sidney Curry to have a foul called on him was the worst call I've seen in a long, long time. And it changed the outcome of the game. Like I said, Carolina may have still won that game, but it did not deserve to be because of those couple calls down the stretch. No, that's the biggest thing. You just said it. There's no uh, accountability in anything that they're doing. The refs sit there and go out and have a horrible, you know, making horrible calls, get calls wrong. And there's absolutely no accountability for it. And it's ridiculous. Coaches have to sit there and step up and hear about it. Coaches have to answer the question. Coaches lose their jobs. How many times do you see referees that sit there and continue to have bad bad calls or bad games consistently, and there's no accountability? They sit there and go home. They get you know their next assignment, and they're right back on the sidelines the next game. It's ridiculous. And you know some of them love it. Some of them go in loving knowing that they've got the power to dictate because they think the TV time's all about them. And I know it's different sports, but everybody who knows me knows I love soccer, football. Um, and we've seen it with my team, AC Milan, over in Italy. About a couple matches ago, we got completely screwed on a call. That changed the course of the game. We ended up getting beat in the match, but – we had a goal there late in the match where we would have scored the advantage should have been played and the ref stopped it short, complete bullshit. Well, the Italian um, association that controls all that reviewed it and they suspended that referee. He hasn't ref the match in the last couple of weeks. I think his suspensions getting to be up, but since then he's went on record saying he messed up. He understood he hates being suspended because he understands he messed up. And once he comes back, he'll understand the error of his ways and work to be better. He learned his lesson because he got suspended for making a terrible judgment call. Something needs to be done about this in college basketball before the game becomes a joke. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. I mean, officiating is is one of those things that you're just supposed to be able to count on before the game is going to be neutral. It's going to be you know, like Corey said, just really facilitating the game and across the country, there's not really any conference that's immune from it. So it's, it's clearly an issue. All right. We'll get off the, the official spiel, but man, that was, I, I do feel bad for Louisville on that one. Um, those calls kind of went against them. Uh, well, not kind of, they did go against them, but um, it turned up not to matter because Louisville got blown out by Syracuse. They're in such a, <laughs> they're in such a bad state right now. We can't spend every week talking about them, but they're, yeah. But that that's kind of our deal on officiating. It's got to change somehow, some way. A couple other games from this past week we want to talk about. Let's talk about your boys, man. Let's talk about the Illinois Fighting Illini. Two big wins this past week, beating Wisconsin at home and then going on the road to take down Corey's Indiana Hoosiers in convincing fashion. The Illini look like they're starting to put it together. I've seen some pundits um across the college basketball landscape saying that you know especially as Corbello gets healthier Illinois got the look of a final four team yeah and they're starting to show themselves as a a good second half team which I think is actually a a good sign for them too you know they had a close game with Wisconsin after the first half only up four getting pounded on the offensive boards by Wisconsin gave up eight in the first half um but we're able to pull away in the second half of that one a little bit. Uh, obviously, Coburn has the huge night, 37 points, 16 and 19 from the field. Uh, Wisconsin just didn't have an answer for them 
or for him, excuse me. And, and that didn't surprise me. I sort of expected that that would be a good mismatch for him. Um, and then again, yesterday, you know, they go into the half down two and uh, come out and outscore Indiana by, uh, by 17 in the second half, so, by 19 in the second half, excuse me, win the game by 17. Um, Indiana, I believe was uh, undefeated at home this year. So that's just a huge win for them, especially going into the Purdue game this week. You know, they needed they needed a little confidence to get some big wins. Indiana, we had one loss. We got blown out by Michigan. Yeah, I was going to say, um, they took so the Michigan, but they were like 12-1, and 13-1, or whatever it was. But still, I mean, you went to Assembly Hall to, to take a victory. Illinois, though, starting to look like the real deal. 17-5. and five, They're 15th now in Ken Palm. They're atop the Big Ten Conference at 10-2. and two. They're at a better record right now this year than they were last year when they were a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, which is wild after losing a guy like Ayo Donsumu. Um, impressive resume. Like I said, once Corbello gets healthy, I think it's, I think, um, I think it's all systems go for Illinois, man, because Trent Frazier has been playing well, Alonzo Plummer or Alfonso Plummer. I mean, Illinois is looking like the real deal right now. Um, upcoming schedule, of course, in the Big Ten is going to be brutal. We got Purdue next on Tuesday night. Get the return leg of that tremendous game on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But Illinois right now, man, um, I know you got to be feeling good about them, especially once Corbello gets healthy. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling great and uh, felt really good about how they defended Johnny Davis. Uh, Trent Frazier's on him most of the night. He saw a little bit of DeMonte Williams, too. Um, but when we have a couple of different guys, you know, we can throw at some guards. We, we don't have a whole lot of uh, size on the wings, so we can tend to struggle with uh, some bigger wing players. But, uh, yeah, he went um, – shoot, I don't have it in front of me now. But uh, he, he did not shoot the ball. I think he was 5 from 19, actually. Uh, he got to the line 14 times. But uh, not on Illinois' side, but one thing I wanted to touch on is how good of a rebounder Johnny Davis is. And that game he had 15 rebounds and six on the offensive boards. I can't think of a guard who's a better rebounder than he is. Tremendous. Um, tr- and Kofi Coburn, by the way. I say Oscar Shibway is the most um, dominating all around big in the country this year just what he does all around but there's not a more dominating big man on the offensive end than Kofi Coburn he's almost unguardable like you you literally have to be strong enough to force him out of the block because if he gets it around the paint if he can get a paint touch he's scoring he's going to either dunk through you or finish with a hook or something um you almost have to just try to push him out of the lane and make him shoot jump shots because if he gets it, no. if he gets it two feet in the paint, then he's going to score. I said that was one of the biggest things that you know coming into this year that you know even a lot of NBA scouts talked about was you know just being softer on the rim and being able to finish in multiple ways. Just because he is such a big dominant man, and it was like this year he's completely you know learned a whole another side to his game of finishing softer on the rim, sitting there being able to have that you know that uh, that touch sit there and finish and I mean he's he's completely stepped it up I mean he demonstrated it last week 54 points 20 you know 20 rebounds in two games it's you know definitely uh definitely stepping up his game sitting there it was a dominant force against Wisconsin Indiana he sat there and got Jackson Davis in foul trouble early he came out and uh Indiana just didn't have an answer and I mean they sit there and I mean he just is he's completely sitting there changing the game and also on top of it it was nice to sit there and see you know, Frazier doesn't have his best game against Wisconsin, 
and some of the forward play and stuff kind of stepped up around him so they kind of you know dictate and kind of keep that game you know out of reach for wisconsin and kind of keep rolling so it just shows that illinois is becoming more and more dominant illinois has multiple ways to sit there and defeat you and like you said the more uh Kerbella gets healthy and starts playing and getting some key minutes i mean that team's just going to become more uh more you know of a uh, a threat in my opinion last thing on illinois before i want to touch on indiana real quick um and this is for you phil does this surprise you? Because I know it kind of – it did me once I've seen the stat and heard about it that at this point right now that you guys have a better record now than you did at point, this point last season when you were a number one seed. Um, it honestly doesn't, and the only reason that is is because I, I remember last year, you know, we, it was a very similar year to this year and that we sort of started the season with some higher expectations, had a little bit of a rough stretch where we dealt with some injuries, not having our full squad out there, and then sort of hit that, you know, hit our uh, stride in Big Ten play. Um, so the, I would have guessed that their records would be very similar. Um, so I guess it is a little surprising that they're better this year. But, um, you know, I think it surprised a lot of people last year that Illinois got a number one seed you know, I think they had six losses on the season last year. And uh, I think part of the reason that they've, you know, they've been stepping up and playing better as the season goes on is because you mentioned Ayo Dasunmu earlier. He was such a high usage player in this offense and everything they did ran through him. And so I think it's taken a while for them to adjust to having to do it through other guys and guys having to step into bigger offensive roles. And I think you're finally seeing that, offense take a step forward and then uh you know they played good defense for the most part all year they still seem to have stretches where they break down and uh you know slight kind of mental breakdown stuff give up some easy back cuts easy layups that type of thing but uh i think they're their potential final four team i completely agree they're top 25 in both offense and defense so we talk about that being a big time metric if you can be in both that you've got a really good shot of making a huge run in March. Indiana, though, really quick, Corey. Every time it seems like we're about to rank the Hoosiers, finally crack top 25, they drop a game. Um, they are now 16-6 and six on the year, 36th in Ken Palm, still in a good spot. They're solidly in the tournament. They're not in any danger. However, if they want to get off that seven, every, every bracket I've seen over the last month is they've been either between a seven and a 10 seed, just varying where they're at. Those, obviously, you're wanting to finally get back in tournament after not being in over the last five years, I think. Um, so you'll take it, but those are dangerous games right now. You want to at least try to get up to the six range. Five, if possible, I think is the ceiling for Indiana if they can go on a big run in the year. Schedule, schedule is going to be tough. Um, you got Northwestern on the road, Michigan State on the road, Wisconsin home, Ohio State on the road, Maryland home, Minnesota away. Rutgers home and the end of the year at Purdue on the surface Northwestern um you would think you'd get Wisconsin at home but you don't know but West or sorry Northwestern Maryland at home Minnesota on the road and Rutgers at, at home there should be four wins to get you to the 20 win plateau thoughts on Indiana um uh, like I said every time we think that they're about to get ranked they drop it they drop the game right before so how are you feeling? Um, obviously still a tournament team, but you talk about Trace Jackson Davis. This is another game against another big physical center. We go back to Purdue game where he's in foul trouble and it negates his ability to, you know, change the course of a game. You get in the tournament, he's got to stay on the floor because I know your guards 
have spurts where they play good. Xavier Johnson, Rob Fennessey, even though he's done with the injury. Um, Christian Landers getting more minutes. But you need TJD to stay on the floor. Yeah, no, 100% I agree. I mean, the biggest thing is, is it just goes to show that, you know, Jackson Davis may not be quite as ready for the next level as he thinks. And some of his biggest weaknesses have been getting kind of seen right now. Um, you know, the Big Ten always has great bigs. And, you know, they're just flat out dominating him, you know, when he's going against guys that are bigger than him. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I think, uh, I think, like you said, I think they're definitely a tournament team already. I think, you know, they have to win at least four to five of these next uh, next nine. Or, uh, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, out of this next eight, sorry, uh, to sit there and really kind of, you know, have a chance of moving up that ranking uh, or that seeding. Um, you know, it's going to be a definitely a tough test. I mean, Northwestern on the road. Indiana is going to have to show that they can play on the road a little bit. Michigan State is, is always tough, uh, you know, especially going into East Lansing. You know, Indiana hasn't had a lot of great success there. Wisconsin coming in, I mean, that's another game that can go either way. Can Indiana hold home court or do they drop? And, you know, going into Ohio State, Maryland coming in, going on the road to Minnesota and, you know, finishing out with Rutgers and Purdue. And you guys I think they definitely – too, because earlier in the year, that first matchup back in December, you guys had them down by – was almost 20 and let them come back and yeah. beat the full center. Hey, hey, that was December. We're not. We're in February now. Let's not bring up you know horrible memories that you know still give nightmares to some people. Right. Um, but Indiana. yeah, no. I think Indiana has the opportunity to sit there and you know kind of help their case definitely by moving up. But they also have a great case of you know hurting themselves too. It'll be the uh, the tale of what really comes out of it, in my opinion. It's another one of these cases where Indiana's not. 19- in defense, but they're 95th in offense. Um, they're they're going to have to figure out ways to consistently score the basketball. And if that's maybe getting buckets off of their defense for some more turnovers that convert into transition buckets. But TJD's got to learn to stay on the floor, and they need their guards to play up to par every single night. I see a lot of Indiana fans complain about starting Miller Cop and um, – Parker Stewart at the exact same time. They're, they're tired of seeing that lineup. Is there anything in the lineup that you would change to maybe help spark some more offense? I honestly think uh, Cop needs to be coming off the bench. I think Stewart, he's sitting there starting to get some some of his looks. He's still hitting, you know, high percentage at three. I think Cop is just kind of overmatched right now with what the what Indiana's scheme is. Uh, I think it kind of worked at, you know, Northwestern where he's kind of able to be hidden, but um, I think Kim's really exploiting him. I would definitely get Geronimo in there. Geronimo's getting more and more um, – or getting better more and more. Uh, I think he brings a whole other attribute – or, you know, athletic uh, rebounder, a whole entire, you know, shot blocker, somebody that can move, kind of help, uh, you know, kind of help around the defensive end. But also, I mean, he can sit there and, you know, high fly and, you know, bring some energy. He also can hit that uh, – hit the midway – wow, I can't talk. Sorry. Hit the mid-range jumper. And uh, some of those things, I mean, can really sit there and help out. Um, you know, Indiana just has to sit there and play a solid 40 minutes. That's the biggest thing. Right now they're playing, you know, a good 20 to 25 minutes and not playing a full 40. And I mean, that's the same thing that happened on, you know, Saturday. They sit there and put together a solid first half, go into the locker room up uh, after scoring 36 in the first half, and then all of a sudden they come out and drop 21 points in the second half and, you know, drop the game. So if they don't put together a full 40, it's it's weird too because Cop and Stewart 
um, are their best three-point shooters. Cops at 38.7% and Stewart shooting 45% from three. I mean, that's lighting the nets up. We were talking about um, A.J. Griffin at 50%. Or Parker Stewart's at 45 But for whatever reason, I think they're two not similar, but neither guy uh, – Stewart does it better than Cop as far as breaking somebody off the dribble. But really in these starting lineups, you look at the most frequent lineups over the past five games starting-wise – Xavier Johnson, Parker Stewart, Miller Cop, Race Thompson, Trace Jackson Davis. Of those guys, Xavier Johnson's the only one that can really break a man off the dribble consistently if he needs to. Um, I think you guys need another – I think you need to try to go to a two-point guard lineup. When fantasy gets healthy, I would go fantasy and Xavier Johnson to give you multiple guards because all the good teams this year have multiple guys who can run point guard. We talk about – Yeah, no. We talk about Purdue. We talk about Gonzaga and Duke. They have at least two, if not three guys on the floor at any time that can run the offense. Indiana in this lineup only essentially has Xavier Johnson. Yeah, no, I understand exactly what you mean. I think uh, injuries have definitely dictated a lot. I think uh, Christian Lander just kind of proved again on Saturday. He had a couple good stretches and showed that he wasn't quite ready again for a big-time matchup. Uh, I think when Fennessey gets back, I I think that would be something definitely to review. I think Cobb just brings too much stationary offense. He doesn't understand the movement. He doesn't understand, you know, running off screens and needing to continuously, you know, move through emotion. Running uh, off screens anymore at six seven. We seen against Syracuse. He had a good game where he hit a bunch of threes. But I think at six seven, if you're going to play him like that, you either just need to stand yeah. him in the corner and say, "All right, well, we'll play and try to get you a, a you know attack to get you an open three. But I'd post him up more at six seven, two hundred twenty pounds. Why not try to create a mismatch when teams switch and get a smaller guy on him and let him go get some easy buckets? The easiest way for a shooter to get rolling is just see the ball go through the net. Get to the foul line more, um, get some easy layups, get some confidence going on the block, and then make teams worry about you going down there and you can pick and pop and get some threes. I, I think if I'm Indiana, I try to post him up more. Yeah, I just don't know how comfortable he feels in this, especially with, you know, Thompson and Davis, kind of, you know, playing the high-low game, and you know, or, you know, back on each block and stuff like that, how much does it really open up? I just don't know, you know, what he feels comfortable in. You know, what are we 20 games in? We still don't really see where he's really benefiting us right now. So, Yeah, so Indiana um, just need to continue to figure it out. I do think their tournament team, though, Mike Woodson's been pretty good under his first year, but – they're going to have to start knocking some teams off to, to prove that not only are they tournament ready, but they can they can make a little run in the NCAA tournament. Um, kind of rounding out some of the, the games from this pack, past week. Any other games that kind of caught your guys' eye you want to go over real quick? Kansas? How about Kansas? Well, I'll, I'll start with that one. How about Kansas just destroying Baylor yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think – I don't remember what you predicted, Josh, but I know uh, me and Corey both sort of predicted that Kansas would uh, bounce back with some big home wins this week. And, yeah, uh, Kansas. Okay. Yeah, so I think we were all three sort of on that one that, uh, you know, Kansas would just show up at home. And, uh, again, something – it's coming up every week now, but Baylor just, you know, isn't quite the same team that we maybe thought they were three or four weeks ago. Uh, ever since the uh, Akinjo absence – um, due to COVID, you know, they, they've never really bounced back from that. And uh, yeah, it, it's tough to win in Allen Fieldhouse to begin with. And then just Baylor could never get anything going offensively. And they, they didn't even look like they belonged on the same floor. 
it's a, it's funny how much a week changes everything because we were talking last week, Kentucky goes into Allen Fieldhouse and throttled Kansas and Kansas responded nicely with a win earlier in the week at Iowa State. And then we all expected Kansas to win and look a lot better. I don't think any of us expect them just to beat Can- Baylor's ass like that, 83-59. They were tremendous. That's another one. Baylor was never in, even in the game. John, just because uh, it's been back-to-back weeks that they've had this matchup is uh, UCLA and Arizona. UCLA got the better at Arizona uh, at home in LA, and uh, Arizona was able to bounce back this week and uh, get the 10-point win. Kind of a, a rough weekend for UCLA between the uh, losses to Arizona and Arizona State. It's uh, not a good good road trip to the desert state. No, yeah, UCLA taking, uh, taking the double L this week. How about Arizona? I mean, we talked about coach of the year. Tommy Lloyd's got to be right at the top of that. Coming over from Gonzaga, longtime assistant with Mark Few in Arizona, they look the part of a Final Four team. They look the part, man. Um, tremendous. You can't say enough good stuff about Arizona right now. No, not at all. And we talked to sort of glue guys earlier, and uh, Dalen Terry is one of my favorite glue guys in the country. You know, he just, he does every little thing that they need to win. He he's a long wing. So, uh, you know, six, seven, 195. He can, he can guard just about any, you know, guard slash wing that you need him to, um, on the season, he struggled knocking down threes for the most part. Um, but you know, he had a nice game this game and, uh, Kirk Risa still wasn't super efficient on offense, but it was something we talked about in the loss last week. You know, he wasn't going to go Oh, for 14 again. And, uh, yeah, he, he was able to contribute some for them. I think Arizona, it, what was most impressive for me about the win was Ben Matherin didn't, you know, didn't go off. He only had 11, and they were still able to sort of overcome that and, and uh, get a big win for themselves. Yeah, and this is a team that only really plays eight guys, but all of them play, you know, at least 12 minutes or more, 15 minutes for the most part. Um so they only play eight guys, essentially, and they're all super talented. They're a big lineup. Christian Coloco in the USC game uh, last night – or yeah, last night, sorry. Uh, Ten points. Wasn't his best outing, but just him being at seven-foot-one down low and controlling the paint makes – Arizona's a tough team to play right now. I mean, they are a handful. And uh, just one more thing on Dalen Terry real quick. He's – in only 26 minutes a game this year, he's averaging seven points, five rebounds, and almost four assists. I mean, the guy just touches the stat sheet in every little way. And then he's getting some steals, too. You know, he's averaging over a steal a game. Um, just a really, really valuable player. Yeah. Um, UCLA dropping two this week. Johnny Juzang, you know, 12 points against Arizona. Didn't really do anything last night against Arizona State. Man, I don't know. Um, UCLA they've got all this talent and potential. I know that we've talked about it before with the metrics and everything. I still think they can be a dangerous team, but just not at this kind of consistency. They hit three threes against Arizona. They only took 14, but they only hit three of them. This is a team that's got some shooters. Jaime Jaquez, Johnny Juzang, Tiger Campbell can hit some. Um, man, they've just got to find a way to manufacture more consistency on the offensive end. It's the craziest thing. Like somebody said, they're not as good as they seem. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder who that is. I don't know. I feel like some guy just keeps saying it, but you know. You look at Arizona real quick. Their remaining schedule since we've been on the topic of that today. 
Arizona State, Washington State, Washington, or Oregon State, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, Stanford, Cal, um, and a bad Pac-12 outside the top couple teams. Arizona could legit run the table at the end of the year there. That would get – that's the what, one, two, three, four, five, on, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine more. That would put them at 28-2. and two. That's a one seed right there. Absolutely. And I think just with, you know, looking at the schedule we've looked at with some of the other teams down the stretch, if Arizona is able to run the table like that, um, that would, you know, give them two more wins over USC. Uh, it would probably put them in the conversation for the number one overall seed. You would have to think, especially if like Auburn or somebody slip. Well, maybe if Auburn don't slip up, you put that record up against them. I mean, Arizona, Tommy Lloyd, tremendous this year. They're number two in Ken Palm, by the way, right now, too. Um, I don't know if anybody had said that yet or not. But wrapping up kind of the the games from this past week, the, the high point ones, anything else you guys want to go on? All right, I'll take that as a no. <laughs> I'll take that as a no. So let's go ahead and start looking at some games coming up for this week. Um, again, staying in the Big Ten, it's another big week inside the Big Ten Conference. Let's go to the Wisconsin at Michigan State this week. What are we feeling about this one? Both these teams towards the top of the conference battling to try to get that that double bye that's so important in the Big Ten Conference or the Big Ten Tournament. Wisconsin, you know, potential player of the year candidate Johnny Davis going at Michigan State. How are we feeling about this one? Um, you know, this is an interesting one. Both teams are reeling a little bit. Michigan State got blown out at the rack yesterday by Rutgers. Um, and Wisconsin's had, had a little tough stretch of things here as of late. Um, I think Michigan State gets this one done. And what's, a, as you mentioned, a really big game as far as the Big Ten standings go. But, yeah, I go uh, Michigan State in a tight one, 64-62. Yeah, um, man, State, they've lost three of their last seven. It looks like one, two. Yeah, three of their last seven. So, you know, they, after that big win streak from the loss from Baylor, I, I don't know. I don't want to say they're real, and I don't think that's fair, but they did get blown out on the road yesterday at Rutgers. I know the rack has claimed some victims this year with, like, Purdue and now Michigan State, but um, they're – 30th in offense, 47th in defense. To me, it just screams a team that has talent, has potential, that can beat anybody in the NCAA tournament, but also another one of those teams that could easily get upset in the first round. I just don't know how to project Michigan State because every time I think that they're starting to put it together and roll and Izzo's got this club figured out, they go and get beat by almost 20 against a, a not a very good Rutgers team or they'll lose at home to Northwestern. I can't figure them out. But being at home, I will favor them to hold home court at the Breslin Center to beat Wisconsin. Um, Ken Palm's got it 72-68. I think that's about right. So I'll say I'll say Michigan State wins 71-65. to say I, took, uh, I took Michigan State, I think, in the first matchup too. And uh, I'm going to stick with Tom Izzo. I'm going to stick with them winning at home. I'm going to take them 71-63. Uh, so we all favor – what do you guys think about Sparty, just real quick? Um, do, you, do you guys kind of feel the way I do right now about him, where you just cannot put a finger on him? Yeah, no, 100% I agree with that. I think uh, I think they have a lot to bring to the table, but I think they're just inconsistent, you know, play. 
Cisterna just always makes you kind of wonder what what tail you're going to get or what team's going to show up that day. I mean, they sit there and beat teams that, you know, you think would be a, a close, good matchup, and then all of a sudden they lose to, you know, teams that they should handle pretty easily. So it's like what competition, you know, level are they going to play at each game? It's so weird, too, because they shoot 39% from three. They're eighth in the nation in that category. And they're one of the best teams defending the three. Teams only shoot 29.9% against them, and that's 34th in the nation. For a team that has that type of ability to shoot and defend the three, you would think they would be a lot better than they are right now. Yeah, and it sort of feels like that's been a common thread between uh, Michigan State teams over the last maybe five years or so is just a little bit more up and down than you would uh, normally guess from a a high-level coach team like that. Staying in the Big Ten, uh, we do have Illinois playing at Pur- or, yeah, at Purdue this week. We alluded to it just a little bit ago. But, Phil, can your boys go in and return the favor and give Purdue a loss at home this time? Well, man, first of all, if that game is anything like the first game, then we're all just in store for a, a great night. But it's it's going to be a tough one. I think Illinois probably would have got that first one if Coburn could stay out of foul trouble. So I'm going to speculate that Coburn does stay out of foul trouble, um, has himself a ball game, you know, proves what he can do going up against Zach Eady. And uh, I think Illinois gets a, a big sort of resume defining win for them in a high scoring one. I'm going to say 80, 74. Yeah, I think it's going to be high scoring. Uh, Corey, your thoughts on this one? I think uh, I think Coburn plays a little bit different style uh, than what he had in the first matchup. I think uh, I think he does stay around the floor a little bit. I just think that Edie Sutan kind of changes you know things up. I think just the uh, you know overall play of Purdue just is a little too much at Mackey. On top of that, you know it's a smaller arena that Sutan gets loud. I, I just think that Purdue wins it. I think uh, I think it's going to be a eighty-three to seventy-six win. So I'm indifferent on this. I, I'm with you. If this is anything like that first class, man, that first class was a top 10, top five game all year so far, as far as excitement level goes. Um, I think part of that Illinois caught Purdue by surprise because Corbello played and nobody really expected him to play. And he played tremendous. We talked about it reviewing that a few weeks ago. He dominated the play. He controlled the tempo. He got to the rim at will. But since then, he's been, again, still kind of struggling to get back in shape, get back in form. I don't think Purdue's going to be caught off guard by him this time. So that means Illinois' guards are going to uh, – the plumber and um, Trent Frazier, those type guys are going to have to step up like they have been and continue to play at a high level. If Corbello is going to play, I think he does affect the game some. My worry about Purdue is – they are, what, 90th, uh, 103rd in defense. They got the number one offense, but 103rd defense. We've talked about how weird that is, considering Purdue under Painter has been known for their defensive identity. They, they have been known here, especially this season, to get up early, play great for 35 minutes or so, and then those final five, six minutes, let teams come back. If they do that to Illinois, Illinois will win. I don't think they can afford to play around. But I don't know, man. Again, I, Corbello really 
made the difference in that game. If he's not healthy and ready to go, this is that one game that because the Purdue size and the way they can rotate their bigs against Kofi, can he dominate like he has been? I think it's going to be interesting. So because of that, I do have Purdue winning in a high-scoring game. I'm with you guys. I've got Purdue winning 90 to 81. I think they stretch it there at the end with free throws. But if they let if they continue the same route of where they get up maybe 10, 12 points with five to go and take their foot off the gas, Illinois will shock them and come back and beat them. I think it's gonna be a fun game. It's gonna be an exciting game, but I think Purdue at home will find a way to win and tighten the race up for the Big Ten even more. Um, I was waiting to see if you guys had anything to say on that. <laughs> but um, so anything else though this week? Because this week's kind of a weird week. We've had so many great games like on Saturdays coming up. This week's kind of light in a way. Anything else you guys wanted to preview and kind of go over? Uh, yeah, real quick. Just want to hear what you guys think of uh, Kansas at Texas. Yeah, um, weird, right? So we talked about Texas, spent a lot of time earlier in the show talking about Texas. I know Texas has, over the years, historically given Kansas fits, especially at home. They've been one of the more reliable teams, if there is such a thing, to beat Kansas year in and year out. But I don't know. This is a big one. We talked about it. Texas has to win this game. They absolutely have to steal this game somehow. But the way Kansas bounced back after getting blown out by Kentucky – um, especially a guy like David McCormick. We railed on him last week, and he, all he did this week was come back and be very consistent again. Christian Braun, um, you know, Oche Abadji didn't even really play that great this week, especially against Baylor. It was more guys like Braun and um, Jalen Wilson. I just think Kansas is going to be too much. I, I don't see – I don't have the faith in Texas to get a win tomorrow night, um, even being at home in a game that they've got to win. I don't have the faith in them. I've got Kansas winning that. I think uh, I think Kansas is just too much. I think Kansas continues on with the way they just beat Baylor and continue on with the confidence. <clears throat> and I think they take that one. I think uh, I think Kansas runs away with it. Yeah, I uh, agree with both of you guys. I just as much as Texas needs this one, I don't think they have enough to hang with Kansas and. Uh, I think Kansas probably gets another big win this week. Yeah, I could. I'm glad you said that. I actually could see them going in and putting on a clinic against Texas. I just we. I know we spent a lot of time on them. I don't. I don't know what it is. It's the tempo and the offense, but I just don't see them manufacturing enough points to beat Kansas. I don't think they're going to hold Kansas. Kansas has got the what the third ranked offense in college basketball now on Ken Palm. I don't think they're going to hold Kansas to 60 points. And if they if they don't hold them to low, mid to low 60s, then they're not going to win that game. That's the only hope they've got is Kansas goes cold, Texas locks up defensively and puts a clinic on because if not, then I don't see them winning. Well, and I think that that Kentucky game little, <clears throat> excuse me, lit a little bit of a fire under Kansas and sort of made them realize, you know, if they don't show up every game, they're not going to be able to beat the best teams in the country. And I think you're seeing, you know, them play with a little bit more of a sense of urgency now. Um, and a lot of times, you know, teams that do make a big run in the tournament 
sort of, you know, they have that game midway or sort of late in the year that they get blown out. And it's that big wake up call they need to, you know, get themselves back together and sort of realize their potential. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, getting smacked in the face sometimes isn't always the bad or always the worst thing that can happen as long as you respond and which Kansas has. Let's go and start getting uh, things wound down for today's show. Um, let's go to our mid-major spotlight this week. Corey, uh, not Corey, uh, Phil, let's go ahead and tell everybody who we are spotlighting this week. The uh, MAAC, you know, had to, had to give Ricky Patino some love, what he's doing at Iona, 19 and 3. Some big wins, you know, beat uh, beat Alabama earlier in the year, and I think a lot of people are looking at them as you know one of those mid majors that can potentially make a deep run in the tournament. Yeah, um, I think Iona. It's weird because we talked to um, a couple other bracketologists and stuff about Iona and what happens. Would they be able to steal an at large bid? Should some happen, they not win the Metro Atlantic Conference. And some say they can because of their record and how the bubble's very weak this year. But then some say not because it is a one-bid league and, you know, the Power Six programs will take precedence. But Iona's on an eight-game win streak, 11-0 in conference, running away with it. 19-3, and they've got the, the win against Alabama this year. Patino's just a magician. Really, this is Iona, and that's it. Um, St. Peter's is 8-3 in the league, but – Man, it's Iona's conference to to win or lose, essentially. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. And, uh, you know, looking at Iona's schedule, they, they've played a schedule that I think is going to really help them come tournament time as well. You know, they played Harvard, usually a tough Ivy League school. They played Liberty, who's going to be competing in their league for a bid. Uh, we talked about it. They beat Alabama. They had a close loss at Belmont, who's, you know, one of those – um, mid-major teams that we talked about last week in the Ohio Valley, but that just is consistently competing for tournament bids and sort of plays like a tournament team. Um, I don't think personally that they they have enough to get in uh, if they're not able to get the bid. Just like you said, because of the stature of the league, I think it would be hard to get a uh, at-large bid out of there. And yeah, the only team I would really see as a threat to them in the conference tournament, maybe Monmouth, um Monmouth seems like one of those teams that you know had high expectations for a few years with King Rice and was never really able to get through the uh conference tournament was always getting knocked off and uh so it wouldn't surprise me to see them now with the expectations maybe a little lower sneak up on Iona and steal that bid yeah and speaking of um speaking of Monmouth um they've got two guys in the contention for the Ken Palm player of the year in the conference George Pappas and Walker Miller so they've got a little talent, but this is Iona's conference to win or lose. It's a one-bid league. They are 19th of the 32 conferences in college basketball, though. So, you know, not towards the top, of course, but they're not at the bottom of either. They're actually ahead of other conferences that you would think would be better, like a Mid-American, the MAC, or an Ohio Valley, or even the Horizon League. I remember at one point when the Horizon League was really good with when Butler was in there. So it's not a terrible conference, and normally – the winner of this conference obviously will get like between a Iona if they get in, they're probably going to get as high as a 10 seed, but traditionally the Mac, the MAAC, not the, the mid American, but the MAAC, that one bid team normally gets between a, 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 you know, a 12 and 16 seed, but we've seen some pretty good teams come out of that 
of that conference year in and year out. You look at Iona last year, you know, they gave Alabama a run for their monies of 15. So it's a one bid league, but if Iona is that team that gets through, that's a team that could win a game in the tournament. Yeah. And you touched on it a little bit, but uh, the MAAC sort of does have a, uh, a history of being able to pull off some upsets in the tournament. We've seen uh, Manhattan in the past, uh, have some pretty good teams and get some first round upsets. Uh, Sienna, same thing back when uh, Fran McCaffrey was there. So just, you know, getting through this league, I, I do think prepares a team pretty well to, to potentially steal a game in the tournament. Completely agree. But that was our mid-major spotlight for this week. We have a couple things we're going to do this week that's a little different. Let's start with our National Player of the Year race. We've alluded to it a little bit over the last couple of weeks. But I really want to kind of dive deep into this a little bit more for a minute or two. As the season tightens up, we've only got four weeks left now until Selection Sunday, until everything really kicks in the overdrive. So let's hear it. Let's hear you guys' kind of race and how everything's are shaking out for your National Player of the Year. Yeah, the guy I personally like the most is uh, Ochayabaji. Um, hasn't played his best games the past couple of games, so he may be fading in the conversation a little bit. But uh, I still think for the most part, Kansas goes as he goes. He was awesome in that Texas Tech double overtime game, 37 points. Um, I think a lot of times those are the kind of performances you need to uh, sort of separate yourselves from the field too and get yourself in the minds of, uh, you know, of the voters. So uh, Abaji would be my guy. Corey, do you got a front runner right now? Corey, you there? All right, mate. It sounds like some technical difficulties with Corey. I'll go with mine then. Um, I'm sticking with Oscar Sheway right now. I think he's the most important and dominant player in college basketball right now. But I do think Oche Abadji's still on the running. You got to talk about Johnny Davis still being there. Even a guy like Keegan Murray, uh, I think he's starting to fade away from the list a little bit from Iowa, but he would still be in contention. I still think a guy like Drew Timmy and Paolo Bancaro's in the running, but for me, my front runner would be Oscar Shibley. Do you think uh, with his big performance this past week, and I know he's been in the conversation anyway, but maybe fading, was fading a little bit, uh, is Kofi back in, you know, as one of the top five maybe front runners? Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it. I actually think Kofi would be. I actually think I would put him ahead of Keegan Murray now. I don't know. Um, I'd probably Oscar one, um, Oche two, Johnny Davis three. I could put Kofi as high as four right now. I'd have to – I think probably Kofi would be as high as four right now in player of the year conversation. I don't hear him getting a lot of love as far as, like, national player of the year contention goes, but what about uh, somebody like Alondas Williams from Wake Forest? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'd put him in the national player of the year right now. I think he's tremendous. I think he's obviously carried Wake Forest. I don't know how – maybe he cracks top ten. I just don't know how high I'd put him over other guys like, like I said, a Drew Timmy or a Paolo Bancaro or even a Keegan Murray. But I think he – I think he's probably could crack top ten. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. That was sort of in my mind. The uh, range I had him was, you know, five to ten. So, Corey, you back with us? Did you get that figured out? Yeah, I'm back. I don't know what happened right there. Uh, audio just went out, and then so I had to leave and come back in real quick. 
I okay. So since you're back, real quick, who is your like national player of the year? I think uh, Boncaro. I think uh, I think as Duke rises, I think he sits there and his uh, his uh, player of the year contingency arises with him or with them. I think uh, I think he's going to sit there and just lead them down the way. I think he's going to sit there and make a statement for uh, why. I think uh, Oscar would be my number two, and then. Um, I think overall, I think Timmy would be number three and EJ Liddell would be four. Oh, we forgot about a guy like EJ Liddell, too. I completely forgot about him. Um, it's easy to do. He's over there in a highest state. So, I mean, nobody cares about them. <laughs> I'm sure our Buckeye <laughs> fans listening to this will love you for that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm waiting on the backlash because my entire family is a high state fan. So, as soon as they hear it, I'll, I'll get a text message. <laughs> Uh, before we go into shout outs, we're going to do something that will debut this week as well. We've talked about it, but we officially came up with our own list. We're going to do in the spirit of Andy Katz's, he does weekly his power uh, or his top 36 power rankings or whatever he calls it. We're going to do our top our power ranking 30 our power 30 rankings. Keep in mind, this isn't this isn't necessarily what the AP poll says or anything like that. This is just how a combination of what they've done on the floor this year, um, how we project them, basically how we feel about these teams currently right now. It will take into account a little bit of everything, but it also is ultimately our decision on how these teams are currently playing. So if the team – there's going to be some teams that's not even in the top 25 in the AP polls that maybe you see in honorable mentions or, you know, the receiving votes that will be in this power 30. But we think they're better than that. And then maybe some of the – we as we've – been proven to show that some of these AP poll voters have no clue what they're watching anyways. So this is kind of the, the backstory on our power 30. So let's go ahead and start with that. Let's go start with, um, we'll start with the top and work our way down. So obviously we have Auburn, number one, Gonzaga, two, Kentucky, three, Duke, four, Arizona, five of those top five right now, anything that you guys want to talk about on how those kind of shake out? I actually put uh, Arizona as my number two. I think uh, I think they're playing better and better. I think uh, I think they are kind of starting to put some statements together, and I think they're actually above Gonzaga in my personal opinion. I mean, they've had a good run. We just talked about them, um, good run. But when we were putting this together, because I know Corey, you were we were talking about it. You know, the baseball deal. So um, yeah. Phil and I kind of came up with this list and put everything together and debated on them. Obviously, Auburn Gonzaga is pretty solid. We thought at one, two, but we thought three, three through five, really three through six, that Kentucky, Duke, Arizona, Purdue could be flip-flopped in any range. But I think those teams are all right there in contention for a one seed. Yeah, like you said, we sort of felt like the uh, three through five were – just very interchangeable. I didn't feel super strongly convicted about any of those teams being ranked higher than another. Um, of those teams, though, I do think that uh, the one with the best chance to win the title is Duke, um, but would not be shocked to see any of them, you know, top four or uh, final four, excuse me. And especially, you know, they all have elite eight expectations for sure. And then going down, we'll just do six through 30 real quick. Six, Purdue, seven, Kansas, eight, Illinois, nine, Texas Tech, 10, Baylor, 11, Villanova, 12, UCLA, 13, Providence, 14, Houston, 
15 Tennessee, 16 Wisconsin, 17 Wake Forest, 18 Ohio State, 19 Xavier, 20 Michigan State, 21 Murray State, 22 St. Mary's, 23 Wyoming, 24 Marquette, 25 Davidson, 26 Indiana, 27 San Francisco, 28 USC, 29 Oregon, and 30th Notre Dame of that list. As you can see right there in that early 20 range, Murray State 21, St. Mary's 22, Wyoming 23, and then we have San Francisco at 27, showing love to those mid-major teams. But as we talked about when we debated this, I mean, if you look around college basketball, those teams have a legitimate case to be in that power 30. The, the way that they're winning, the way they're playing, their schedule previous, um, I mean, it's kind of disrespectful in a way when you start looking at these teams like a Murray State or look what Wyoming's done in the last couple of weeks, St. Mary's. Um, it's kind of disrespectful when AP voters and other people don't give them their due credit because these are all teams that are going to be in the tournament and have a chance to win a game or two. Yeah, and, you know, when we were debating this, that was something that we sort of talked about is, you know, if you look at the metrics, some of that stuff, some of these teams may not be ranked as high, but I'm sorry, I'm not going to penalize a team like Wyoming who's only lost three games all season and just went to Boise state and to Colorado state, which are two very tough places to win and, and got wins. Um, so I, I think there's definitely something to be said for the metrics, strength of schedule, you know, all that good stuff, but there's also something to be said for just going out and winning your games. Yeah, um, and a couple teams that were in this list when we did the initial one before we finalized it today um, at the start of last week that dropped because, I mean, look at LSU. They were in there. They completely tanked. They've lost six of the last eight, got beat on the road at Vandy or Vanderbilt yesterday with UConn in there. Um, yeah, a couple of those teams. So anything when we do this again in a week or two and update this, any teams you expect to maybe kind of make – a big jump maybe jump into the power 30 you're looking at maybe even potential to fall out of it um kind of thoughts from you both on that yeah um you know a couple sec teams that i had in strong consideration uh and they actually played each other last night were uh, arkansas and mississippi state i think arkansas probably could have snuck into the bottom of this list but once you get into that sort of 18 to 30 range it's you know really you know nitpicking at that point and uh, it was hard for me to justify putting Mississippi State in when they were already sort of a border team and then they took that loss last night. But I do think either of those teams, you know, could make an argument that they're right on the border. You look at our power rankings, um, Illinois jumped all the way to eighth and they're right behind some of those top teams like Kansas and Purdue, Arizona, Duke, Kentucky and all them. That's how strong that they've been playing here lately. You look at we were talking about their upcoming games, you know, Eight Illinois uh, against six Purdue. That's a matchup right there, depending on how everything goes. Um, when we do this a week from now, Illinois could easily crack top five next week. Yeah, I mean, if they get that win at Purdue and, uh, you know, a couple of things happen in front of them, a couple losses, I, I don't think it's out of the question. Um, and I think it would really more just kind of put them in that, you know, four, three, four, five team you know, um, range that we were sort of talking about with the teams that are very interchangeable, Kentucky, Duke, Arizona. Um, but we'll see, but I, I'm not sure Illinois has a path to being able to, you know, get top four, number one seed type resume. 
Um, I think if they won out and, you know, made it to at least the final of the Big Ten, I mean, I think there's a path that they could. Things would have to fall in place, of course. But um, how about some teams on the outside of the top 30? We talked a lot about Texas in this episode. You know, they would probably be down more towards the 40 range. But if they beat Kansas and Baylor this week, they're in the power 30. For sure. I think, uh, you know, Texas is higher in a lot of the metrics than where we have them. But you know, we've talked a lot about them in this episode. So I think people sort of understand where we're coming from with that one. Other teams that kind of dropped out and just missed because of a bad week this week or the loss um, and the way they – and it's not just the loss. We're not going to drop teams just because they lose. But if they get blown out and look bad, then it changes our opinion. Like North Carolina was in – but getting dominated by Duke the way they did, I thought justified knocking them out of the top 30. Wasn't a good look. Um, getting bailed out at Louisville. But Carolina could work their way back in. UConn got dropped out of it. Uh, we had other teams like St. Louis and Iona on the outside looking in that could slide in in a week or two, depending on how – if they keep winning and teams above them, you know, not look as great. So a couple teams like that on the outside looking in. Yeah, is there uh, – I'd, I'd sort of like to get a team from everybody that maybe isn't in this top 30 right now that you think has a potential deep tournament run in them. Oh, a deep tournament run. Um, and, and let me specify, by deep I mean second weekend. Wow. Um, Corey, I'll let you take the first volley because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain around this one. I don't want to say Texas because that's the easy one because we talked about it. if they get in the tournament, they still got enough talent they could beat some teams. So, so I'm sitting here trying to think myself. Um, that's I'd a say, tough one. yeah, that's, I was say, that's really tough. That's a real tough one. I, I guess mm-hmm. just for time's sake, I'll I'll take the easy answer and say Texas or. Uh, I'll just say Texas because that's an easy one because that's a tough one off the top of my head to think of. The the team I sort of had in my mind when I was asking this question um, because they were ranked a little bit higher in the year and uh, we talked about their season sort of turning on a dime a little bit is uh, Seton Hall for me. I, I think Seton Hall has the potential to surprise a lot of people come tournament time who maybe, uh, you know, forget that they were ranked in the top 25 earlier in the year and were playing some pretty good ball. Um Obviously, you know, they'll have to finish the season strong and all that, but that would be my sort of pick right now. Yeah, I like See, I that. Think I, would go with, uh, I think I would go with Oregon. I uh, we have, they, did you guys have them up there? Yeah, we have them 29th, but that's a good one. How about one kind of um, – maybe it's not outside the box, but how about a Miami? Miami has shown that they can – I mean, they've won the handful of teams that beat Duke this year. I think with the right matchups and if they got hot, I think Miami could sneak into the second weekend. But nonetheless, there is our first uh, Power 30 rankings. We'll keep updating that as the year progresses here in the last few weeks and kind of give you the backstory on that. But as we start to round this show out, I know it's kind of been a weird one, so I appreciate you guys sticking with us. Uh, A lot going on, but, you know, Things happen and we keep moving on, but let's start rounding things down with our shout outs of the week. I'm going to go with mine first. My first shout out, Purdue, talked about at the very top of the show. You know, the first Big Ten team to get a thousand wins in the Big Ten conference. That's a massive achievement. 
surprising as we talked about because you would have thought maybe like an Indiana would have got there. But Purdue is the first team to get a thousand Big Ten wins. So shout out. Arizona sweeps UCLA and USC this week, two top 25 programs to, to really separate themselves, not only nationally, but inside the Pac-12. We talked a lot about Tommy Lloyd and them, so Arizona definitely on the rise. And my third one is kind of a funny one, but shout out to Penn State versus Wisconsin because that game set basketball back 50 years. It was 18-13 at halftime. 18-13 at halftime. Like, that, this is more of like a funny shout out, but that was so bad to watch and keep an eye on. Wisconsin ended up winning, but what a terrible game that was. I'll go ahead and go with mine real quick. I got uh, Kofi uh, just because he sat there and came out and had a dominant week, sat there and, you know, going against uh, another national player that you would contention uh, with Jackson Davis and sat there and just had, 50, like I said, 54 points, uh, 20 rebounds on the week. And then um, I only have two. My second one is uh, Indiana women's uh, picking up a nice win over top of Purdue. Um, you know, it's always nice to beat your rival after being off. They struggled a little bit on Monday night after losing uh, one of their top players. And um, so they're coming out today and picking up a nice win. So uh, Indiana women's basketball. Yeah, I only have uh, two this week also. And uh, oh, can you hear me? Phil, I think you're on mute. Can you hear me now? Yeah, there you are. All right, cool. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, uh, my first – I only have two this week. My first one is uh, Chet Holmgren, a guy I've, you know, maybe been a little critical of this year. But uh, two big games this week. Uh, started out against San Diego, had a crazy stretch. I actually texted you guys about it. Um, he had 10 points in less than two minutes. Um, just a, I, And he had a block in that stretch, too, just pretty nutty overall. And then uh, 20 points against BYU last night. And then the second would be uh, Belmont yesterday overcame a second half deficit. Uh, we're down 20 at one point in the second half. Ended up winning uh, 100 to 92, but also had uh, Ben Shepard and Nick Mazinski with huge games. Shepard had 41 and Mazinski had 33. So, yeah, that's it for me. Yeah, um, Chet Holgram starting to shoot threes more and hitting them really changes that whole Gonzaga team and makes them even more dangerous. But yeah, so we're on episode 99. Again, guys, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you sticking with us. It's been a weird one. Sometimes you, you hit a home run. Sometimes you, you have to hit singles. Today was probably a single. But next week, the historic episode 100. Peyton will rejoin us for the full show. We've got some more surprises in the works. It's going to be a massive show. So I hope you guys are excited and tune in for that one. But rounding out episode 99 of the Everything College Basketball Podcast. Again, thanks goes to our sponsors, Manscaped. Go use the promo code ECB at checkout for 20% off your entire purchase and free worldwide shipping. And New View Painting. Hit up JRO and Company for the best and commercial residential painting around the Indiana area. But with that being said, for episode 99, I am Josh Burton for Phil, for Corey. Can't wait to join you guys, have you guys join us for episode 100 next week. Until then, you guys have a great week of watching hoops, and we will catch you down the road. <laughs>